1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In just about every country, the elderly proportion of the population is growing, but Japan has long been ahead of the curve. We look at how the country is changing its thinking about the old and what lessons the rest of the world can draw from it. And Mormonism counts among the most centralized religions. Even though international missionary work is key to the faith, it remains resolutely based in the American state of Utah. That is making for a struggle to retain its converts abroad. But first, The Omicron variant has been putting a huge strain on hospitals, and presidents and prime ministers have pleaded with the unvaccinated to get their jabs.
2: If you
3: haven't gotten
1: vaccinated, do it.
3: Come forward and get your, your booster. It's a fantastic thing to do.
1: But some leaders are tired of waiting. On Sunday, France's National Assembly approved a vaccine passport required for entry to restaurants, transport, and other public spaces. President Emmanuel Macron had promised to, um... Piss off the under-inoculated, suggesting vaccination was a duty that comes with citizenship.
0: je dis'est quatre citoyen,
1: c'est aussi accepter les devoirs qui vont avec cette citoyenneté. Yesterday, Greece introduced a vaccine mandate on people over 60. Italy already has one on over 50s. And last week, America's Supreme Court approved President Joe Biden's decree that staff at government-funded healthcare care facilities be vaccinated, though it rejected a blanket mandate for large employers but Austria is set to outdo them all. This week, its legislature will pass a requirement that all adults get their jabs or face heavy fines. Over the weekend in Vienna, tens of thousands of people protested against the plans, but the country's leaders evidently feel they've been left with no other options.
3: So Austria is the most advanced here.
1: Our Berlin bureau chief, Tom Nuttle has been taking stock of the spread of mandates
3: throughout Europe. The government has produced a draft law, which is currently being debated in Parliament and should be passed later this week. The mandate will apply to all residents in Austria over the age of 18. A couple of exceptions. It will not apply to pregnant women. Of course, people who have medical exemptions. But the law is due to take effect on February the 1st and people will receive notifications if it is determined that they are resident in Austria but have not received a COVID-19 vaccination. And from the middle of March, they are subject to fines. Typically, this will be €600. In some cases, it could go as high as €3,600. And this will be done once a quarter to people who continue to refuse to take the Vaccine. The organisation that's responsible for administering the registry says it probably will not be in a position to do its job properly until April. So probably before that point, we're looking at sort of random spot checks rather than a systematic attempt to go through the registry to identify the unvaccinated.
1: And is there good reason to believe that that will will do its job to to push up vaccination rates?
3: Uh, In a word, no, no one has done this before. And that's one reason why countries across Europe, I think, are going to be watching the Austrian experiment very closely. So we don't have a whole lot to go on. We've got some surveys. There's a kind of longitudinal panel in Austria, which is asking people about their vaccination status and their reasons for it. And that found recently that of the unvaccinated adults in Austria, two thirds of them roughly, appeared to be sort of fundamentalist anti-vaxxers who said that they would refuse to get vaccinated under any circumstances. But of course, who knows how many of them will continue to take that stance once the vaccine mandate is actually in place. One of the concerns that has been raised in Austria is that so many people may continue to refuse to get vaccinated and therefore be subject to this administrative procedure and fines that it could overwhelm the legal system.
1: But in a sense, Austria has little choice here. Is is the assumption that nothing else will work but something as drastic as this?
3: Um, in effect, yes. That was what the then-Chancellor, Alexander von Schallenberg, said in November when he originally put this proposal on the table. You know, he said that he hated to do this, but he saw no other choice. Other countries are still in the phase of using nudges rather than compulsion, to reduce the number of unvaccinated people. This tends to mean just making it very, very difficult for the unvaccinated to have a normal life. So excluding them from restaurants, cafes, bars, cultural facilities, some cases, um, some forms of public transportation. In fact, when the chancellor back in November said he wanted to impose a vaccine mandate, at the same time, the country established a so-called lockdown for the unvaccinated, which in theory was meant to confine more or less the unvaccinated to their homes. I think that was the first time this had really been tried anywhere before. The evidence suggests that this doesn't seem to have had much effect. It's worth mentioning that Austria, as well as Germany, have some of the lowest vaccination rates among Western European countries. In other words, they have a bigger problem here. And that's probably why you've seen these countries go furthest with these proposals for compulsory vaccination.
1: So how have other European countries dealt with this that are short of this this drastic measure?
3: Several countries have imposed or plan to impose compulsory vaccination on people over a certain age. Germany is a a very important one to watch because the new government wants to impose a vaccine mandate on all adult residents, But the politics of it are very different. So the government is not going to propose legislation. Instead, there's going to be a parliamentary debate um, at the end of January from which some sort of legislation will emerge. We're going to have a free vote in parliament, so not along party lines. And there have also been some interesting developments outside of Europe. In Quebec, in Canada, the government says that it wants, in effect, to tax the unvaccinated because they potentially represent a larger burden on the healthcare system. And then in the US, Joe Biden's administration wanted to oblige larger employers either to ensure that their employees were vaccinated or that they were tested weekly and masked. But that gambit was thrown out by the Supreme Court the other day. They said the executive branch was exceeding its authority. So that's on ice for now.
1: So given all of these mandates that are springing up elsewhere, what what lessons do you think there are for America and all the other places that that may, may come to this decision?
3: I think uh, mandates in Austria, the one that we may get in Germany, perhaps in other places, are highly likely to be subject to challenges at constitutional courts. And those courts, I think, will need to know that governments have tried everything else to reduce the number of unvaccinated people. And that's why the Austrian law has been designed to withstand legal challenge as far as possible. And when the German Bundestag debates this next week, that will be uppermost in people's minds. Has the government done everything else it can in order to demonstrate to a constitutional court that this really is a last resort and they've tried everything else?
1: But as you've laid out, the, the issue here is not about executive overreach or uh, exhausting possibilities, but about a hardcore of people who are really quite dead set on not getting vaccinated. Is, is there any hope of reaching these people?
3: Um, the simple answer, Jason, is that we don't know. These sorts of mandates have not really been tried before. In Germany at the moment, there's a growing anti-vax protest movement, which have attracted elements of the far right and turned violent in many cases. But essentially, everybody's groping in the dark. And here it's interesting to look at Germany. One MP who's also a doctor uh, from the Free Democrats, which is part of the governing coalition, he has produced one of the only specific proposals that we've got so far. Under this, which interestingly would apply only to the over-50s, inspired by Italy rather than all adults, local authorities would write to all residents saying you have an appointment on such and such a date and time to go to your health office and talk to a doctor about vaccines. And then if you're vaccinated, then you would have the ability to upload your certificate and exempt yourself from that appointment. If they still refuse to get vaccinated, they would then be subject to fines having committed an administrative offence. So there's lots of hoops to jump through. But at the end of the day, I just don't think we know enough about why it is that a substantial number of people refuse to get vaccinated. So really, the only way to know whether these sorts of mandates can reduce the number of unvaccinated people is to try them. And that's why people are going to be watching these developments in Australia and germany very very closely in the weeks and months ahead
1: tom thanks very much for joining us
3: thanks jason
0: hi this is janice torres from yo quiero dinero if you own or operate a business whether it's a local operation or a global corporation partnering with bank of america could be your smartest move
4: Demographic change is a bit like climate change. It's invisible until it's not. It's one of those things that slowly creeps up on you, and then when it hits, it really hits hard.
1: Noah Snyder is The Economist's Tokyo bureau
4: chief. That's something Japan has has had to deal with earlier than most of the world. To get a sense of what demographic change looks like and feels like when it does hit, I traveled to Akita Prefecture in the, in the north of Japan and to the town of, of Gojomei. Gojome, half of its residents now are over 65 years old, uh, and its overall population has shrunk by about half since, since 1990. Uh, and I went to the, the morning market, which uh, has been held regularly in the town since the year 1495. So it's got a long history. Uh, but its recent history is a bit quieter, a bit sadder, a bit emptier. There were a handful of, of shoppers, mostly older women, meandering, chatting with their friends, but also recalling how things used to be. Recalling that this was once a bustling street rather than one filled with shuttered stores. So this kind of was a microcosm of the shifts that have happened across Japan in recent decades. And it's a shift that again the rest of the world is going to be facing in the coming decades.
1: In the sense that people are just simply staying healthier and and living
4: longer. Yeah, well so demographic change as it's talked about has these kind of two drivers. One is is what you say which is is rising longevity. People are living longer. They're hopefully staying healthier longer. But the other side of it, or the the second driver, is, is a falling birth rate. So people are having fewer children. And you put those things together and it means that your population is getting smaller and the portion of older people in the population is getting larger. It's not that these things are inherently bad, but these forces have other implications. They put new pressures on governments, they put new pressures on healthcare systems, and they pose new questions to societies about how to design the worlds that we live in.
1: So as you say, these are two different factors. Let's tackle them in turn. What does that mean for the the growing, the, the older end of the, the spectrum?
4: The first thing we have to talk about is what it means to be older. I mean, how we define old age and, and how we think about the phases of life in the latter half of life. We've broken up youth into minute developmental stages, you know, from toddlers to adolescents to preteens to teens to young adults. And we've come to accept that people develop at different paces and that the development is, is an individual process um, with, with sort of common stages. But when it comes to the elderly, we're mostly still stuck in this broad, static, unhelpful category of old or senior or elderly, which starts at 65 and uh, kind of elides the ways in which the latter stages of life also happen differently uh, for different people. And here in Japan, the gerontological society here has proposed calling folks from 65 to 74 pre-old rather than properly old. So there's a real sort of rethinking going on in terms of what it means to be old and what needs to be done in order to make the latter part of life productive, happy, healthy.
1: But how does thinking about the 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 latter stages of life differently, parsing them up differently change the the way that you might deal with those different demographic
4: groups? Well, so I I spoke with one Seventy-year-old head of a, of a community center, a, a nonprofit in Akita Prefecture, Hatakayama Junko. And she she talked about the ways in which these perceptions often make old people feel like a burden, make them feel like they're not needed by society, rather than seeing old people as a potential resource and and as as folks who can contribute, but just in different ways. So, you know, in part, that means thinking about finding new ways for old people to keep working. So, you know, thinking about what kinds of jobs folks can do in old age and what kinds of activities and ways folks can contribute to their communities in old age. The second piece really has to do with with staying healthy. Longevity in itself is is not a problem. Living, living long is something that, that should be celebrated. But the problem really starts when people live live long but unhealthy lives when people become frail and and, and dependent in old age. So there's a lot of thinking going on, you know, about how to build more preventative care into the health system, how to design cities and communities in ways that keep old people active for longer and and hopefully keep them living not just longer lives, but longer, healthier lives.
1: And what about the other end of the spectrum, the the young people who are not only fewer in number, but increasingly outnumbered, I guess?
4: Yeah, so for younger people, it, it means really, again, rethinking the, the, the kind of shape of the communities that they're going to be living in. Gojome is interesting for, for another reason, which is that there are a number of, of young people who've moved into town. I was given a tour around the town by two young guys who had moved from Tokyo to Gojome. Yeah, i They showed me the side of, of town that, that has changed. Oh, a little bit there's this active core of youngsters who who hang out at Babame Base which is a, a, used to be an old elementary school but it shut down for lack of, of children and, and and they've turned it into kind of a center for startups for community events um, for entrepreneurship and they're not only starting companies and 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 hosting events but they're they're thinking through you know what it means to live in an aging society and i think they're sort of coming to terms with the fact that, that the demands of their era are going to be thinking about how to manage decline, thinking about how to manage shrinkage, and to find a new sort of equilibrium, rather than how to spur more and more growth.
1: And if you say Japan is experiencing something that is that is coming to the rest of the rich world in time, then, then what policy prescriptions to, to pull out of what Japan's done?
4: Well, talking to people across Japan, I was really struck by the extent to which even, even though people knew abstractly that this shift was coming, the extent to which it, it, it was a surprise or a shock once it did, you know, in, in, until people turned 80 themselves, they weren't really thinking about what it was like to live as an eight-year-old. I think other parts of the world have a chance to learn uh, from Japan and from other countries that are going through this demographic transition sooner and start to put policies in place before demographic change gets real for them.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Noah.
4: Thank you for having
1: me. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. For young Mormons, it's a rite of passage. Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations. Missionaries learn in a letter, these days by email.
0: Okay, here I go.
1: (laughs) Where in the world they'll be sent to spread the word. You're
4: hereby called to serve as a missionary of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
2: You're assigned to labor in the the Dominican Republic.
4: (laughs) You're assigned to labor in
3: the China. (laughs)
4: Oh my gosh.
1: The Mormon church has expanded well beyond its homeland, in Utah. Just one in five new converts is American. But the church's count of its global membership might be misleading. Recruiting Mormons abroad is one thing, and retaining them is another. What works in Salt Lake City might not in, say, Sao Paulo.
2: So there's a Mormon temple in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and it's a sort of simple building. It's surrounded by palm trees. It has this One single long spire with a golden statue on top. And it's got a kind of distinctly Brazil flavor, but it also resembles a temple that I saw in Provo, Utah. And that's by design.
1: Erin Braun is The Economist's Mountain West correspondent.
2: One of the women who worships in Sao Paulo that our colleagues in Brazil talked to said the church is kind of like McDonald's in that No matter where you go around the world, it kind of feels similar.
1: Which is to say that the similarities go beyond just architecture.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's a point of pride of the church, actually, that you could go to a temple in Manila and get some of the same teachings and the same vibes that you would elsewhere. And Mormonism is a distinctly American religion. You know, it was founded in upstate New York and its leaders were chased through Ohio and Missouri and Illinois until they ended up in Salt Lake City, which is Mormonism's cultural and spiritual home today. And the church is still very centralized. Its wealth and its leadership and its theological teachings still kind of emanate from Utah, unlike maybe other decentralized Christian sects like Pentecostals or Seventh-day Adventists
1: and what's wrong with that it, it keeps the message pure doesn't it
2: so some mormons worry that that centralization and uniformity prevents the church from adapting to different cultures as it grows and therefore prevents it growing altogether part of that might be how missionaries are recruited and trained i visited a training center in provo utah One of the things that they focus on is the number of baptisms that each missionary is able to get. And church leaders stress to me that that is by no means the only metric of success, but it is, of course, important for growing the church's numbers abroad. And so there's been some chatter about whether or not more focus should be placed on retaining members rather than getting new ones.
1: But that question of, of retention aside, it, it's clear that the church has a, a big and seemingly growing global membership.
2: If you look at the church's statistics that they keep, the growth that they have seen in the past couple decades is really astounding. There's something like 16 million Mormons all over the world. But the church's definition of a Mormon is anybody who has ever been born into or baptized into the faith. So the number of practicing Mormons is much fewer. And to some extent, that's true in every religion. You know, not everybody who counts themselves a Catholic goes to church every Sunday. But in Brazil, for example, we found that in 2010, the church suggested that there were just over a million Mormons in the country. But on the census that same year, there were only about 225,000 Brazilians that identified themselves as Mormon. And that issue of retention is less true of other Christian sects that are more adaptable.
1: And Mormon leaders must see this happening, though. Do you you think they'll be willing to adapt the church's approach?
2: I think it's going to be very slow, but there is some adapting happening. The handbook that church leaders use was recently revised to allow for more musical instruments and styles in worship missionaries and church leadership are slowly becoming more geographically diverse it's going to take a long time to trickle up to you know the top echelons but it's happening but this is still a church with its heart really in utah and i'm not sure that that is something that is going to change anytime soon
1: erin thanks very much for your time
2: thanks for having me jason
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.